our scripture. Our scripture lesson this morning is found in Mark chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 12. Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such a large number that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now there are some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. The word of the Lord. There's something about the actions of these four friends in this passage that I think um, personifies in many ways Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, when he writes, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Where we can look at the actions of these four friends and see what faith, hope, and love looks like when we live it out. Over the last three messages that I've shared, we've considered that God came to us as a rescuer. We saw how he restored people physically and spiritually. And we considered that when we are rescued by Jesus, we experience a rest that we all long for. Now, in this particular story, it has the feel of, of a heist. It has the feel of, of something mysterious is going on that, that where everyone else is unaware of what's happening in the story except for five men, where, where these five guys show up to this event, and, but then they've got this, something on their mind, but no one else is aware of what's going on. And so this morning, as we conclude our series as Jesus, Our Rescuer, this passage is as much about Jesus rescuing the paralytic as it is about these four friends who brought their paralytic to Jesus. 
Because what we see from these four friends is that sometimes you and I play a role in people's lives as we point them to the rescuer as well, which is where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 2. So we know that this is fairly early in Jesus' ministry and that wherever Jesus went, crowds seemed to follow him. And so as Jesus entered Capernaum, which was kind of part of one of his home bases, he would go there frequently, and, and as he would go, as he would come to Capernaum, word would spread, and people would come from, from all over to hear the teachings of Jesus, this, this new religious teacher talking about the coming kingdom of God. And if they weren't coming to hear what he had to say, they were coming to witness miracles and, and, and healings that he would perform on a regular basis. And what we see from these four friends is, is that they played a role in this, in this, in this teaching of Jesus. And the, the crowd that came wasn't just these four friends and the par, their paralytic friend, but instead it was a mixed crowd. See, in this particular group of, of people that came to listen to Jesus, many came as supporters of Jesus. They were captivated by his teachings of God's kingdom, yet, yet others listened equally captivated, but for a different reason entirely. These were the people who, who were looking for inconsistencies in Jesus' message. Teachings that they could use as, as fodder to accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Things that he could, they could accuse Jesus of, of being inconsistent with what the Torah taught. So that they could discredit him. This day, of course, was no different. Jesus was likely at Peter's house in Capernaum. And there was... Lots of people. There was, it, the, the, the house was full. Standing room only. By all indications from this scripture, Jesus in this, in this particular day seems to be doing more teaching than healing in this particular moment. But that doesn't stop these five men. They had a different agenda. They were on a heist. They wanted to see a healing, not listen to teaching. They wanted to see, specifically, they wanted to see their, their paralyzed friend healed. And so they've come on a mission, and it seems like nothing will get in their way from, from that mission happening. Unfortunately for these guys, though, when they get to the house Jesus is at, they see that the lineup is longer than the return line of Boxing Day at Costco. So now they have one of two options. They can either wait for the line to work its way through, or they can go home. But when you're in the middle of a heist, when you're in the middle of a rescue, waiting or going home really aren't options, are they? You see, the urgency of the now demands a response when someone is being rescued. I remember about nine years ago, we had, we had been living in Lethbridge for about a year, and Abigail, she would have been about four, Silas would have been just under two. And it was a Tuesday night, and Tuesday night at, at our church was children, children's ministry night, where uh, all the kids from the community and, and our church would come, and they would do a Bible study together. And so Abigail was there, and, and we were there to pick up Silas, or we were there to pick up Abigail, but Silas was with me. And, and as I said, Silas was, he was about just under two. He started walking when he was 18, 19 months and so as we waited for the program to end, the way that our church was designed is there was the foyer, but above it was a kind of a catwalk that led to the balcony. 
And so you could stand on the catwalk and you could watch all the goings-ons below as, as the kids ran about to the different programs and stuff. And, and it, was, it was fine. And, and Silas, though, was, at this point, was just getting comfortable enough to, to begin to walk confidently on his own. And so the catwalk was large enough for him to explore, but, but small enough that I, he wouldn't get lost and he wouldn't get run over by other kids or other people. And so as, as I'm watching below, the, the, the goings-ons below me, Silas is kind of behind me, just kind of waddling around and doing his thing. And, and then suddenly I heard this, this cocktail of sounds. And the first sound that I heard sounded like a crunch. The kind of sound that you hear when something hard has impacted something else that's equally hard, like a head on a floor. But then that crunch sound was mixed in with a sound kind of a grinding sound, the type of sound that you hear when something brittle makes contact with something hard, like teeth on a floor. And then naturally, the coinciding sound of crying as my two-year-old son was laying face down on the ground crying. When I rushed over to pick him up, he was already covered in blood and tears, and, and, I, and I rushed over, and, and as I took him to the bathroom, I noticed very quickly that there was something missing from his smile. See, there was a tooth-sized gap that was, that was where his smile once was, had knocked out one of his front teeth. Lyndon over there is crying. <laughs> the one, and then the one beside it was now more diagonal rather than, than vertical. You see, what had happened with Silas was while I was looking down and he was wandering around, there was two steps that went to the balcony. And he hadn't yet learned the skill of climbing stairs. And so as he was working his way up the stairs, he, went, he reached for the first step, and it was kind of like a missed high five. And so he just kept falling forward, and his face absorbed the impact of the, of the step. And so if this is the, the, ed, the, the nosing of the stair, his mouth c- caught it all. And so the, the impact actually, if you go to, my, go to that church to this day, there's, there's a metal trim there. You can see the four little indentations where his teeth landed. Needless to say, we ended up, I, had, and I had to rush him to the hospital to make sure that everything was okay and, and, and to make sure that, yeah, that he was going to be able to, that we were possibly able to get those teeth put back in. But I rushed him to the hospital because of the urgency of the now demanded that I respond when Silas needed to be rescued. And although rescue comes in different forms, Often, other people play a role in helping us get rescued. Just like the paralytic man, his friends played a critical role in his rescue. The actions of these four friends reveal to us their their feelings, their, their opinion of who Jesus is as the rescuer. That they were willing to do whatever it took to bring them to Jesus. Except these four rescuers have hit a have hit a roadblock. But here's the thing, that when you're on a mission, when you're, when you're on a heist, when you're so close to accomplishing that mission, there are very few things that can get in your way. And so as these four friends bringing their, their fifth friend along, the level of urgency suddenly elevates for these four friends. And so instead of option number one, going home, instead of option number two, waiting, they create option number three. It only, involve, it only involves some mild vandalism. But other than that, this option is actually pretty creative. 
And so they take the stairs on the outside of the house, which would have been pretty common in most Palestinian houses, and they climb up onto the roof. Now in those days, the roofs on the houses would have been flat. They would have had some wood on top, some, some soil, grass, to, to protect from the elements, the rain, and the, and the heat. And these four buddies, can you just see them? Bringing their, their paralytic friend up, and they're on top of somebody else's house now, and they're just digging through someone else's house, someone else's roof. And they start pulling this apart. Can you imagine this morning if suddenly we started seeing stipple from the ceiling fall down and then chunks of drywall fall on top of our heads maybe? And then we see four bozos, their heads sticking through the, through the ceiling, so proud of what they've just accomplished. It's amazing how far people will go to bring others to Jesus. These guys are unwilling to say no. The urgency and desperation that they had was what compelled them to bring their friend to Jesus. When we bring the needs of others to Jesus, the Bible calls that intercession. Where we go on behalf of someone to express a need. When we intercede in someone's life, there's an understanding that either a person is completely unaware of their need for rescuing, or they have an inability to be rescued, or to express their need to be rescued, like the paralytic was. Now the word intercede is only used half a dozen times in the New Testament, but each time it's used, it's, used as, it's, it's meant to describe this idea of appealing to someone as their representative to express a need. Conceptually, intercession is rooted in the Old Testament, where the priest would stand between the people and God, bringing God and man together through sacrifices and offerings. In the New Testament, we discover that that priesthood is now given to us, that we get to be the ones to, to bring others to Jesus. And these four men model it for us. At the root of intercession, though, is an expression of faith. Where they placed, these men placed their faith in the character of God and the belief that he could heal their friend. Faith is believing in something beyond ourselves. There was something that these four men saw in Jesus something that they saw in his character that prompted them to believe that Jesus might be the only one who could rescue their friend in need. That his mercy, that his kindness, that his grace, they, they, they recognized that it wasn't normal. That there was something divine about this, this man that was before them. It was a type of mercy and kindness and grace that, that transformed people. And these four men saw Jesus and they, they had faith that Jesus could, could transform their friend as well. Because the plot twist in this story is that once they've lowered their friend down from the ceiling, all the way down, the mission takes a turn because in their minds, the, the heist was all about getting their friend healed from his paralysis. But Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Wait, What? That's not what we signed up for. We're not talking about this, this sin business. We're not talking about this, 
the spiritual stuff. We're talking about the practical stuff. We're talking about the physical needs that, that my friend has here. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And there's no indication that that was what they were asking for. Unlike so many other examples that we see in, in the Gospels, there isn't an explicit request for healing or forgiveness. But instead, we discover, like we did last week with the bleeding woman, that grace is everything that, that Jesus is about. That he's looking for opportunities to express grace. And as I said, the four friends were more concerned about practical things, the, the urgency of the now. But we see that Jesus, the rescuer, is more concerned about spiritual things. The urgency of the next. And what we see is that sometimes what we think we need from Jesus isn't actually what we need at all. But instead, Jesus wants to do something deeper and more significant in us, but they just didn't know it yet. Culturally, in that particular context, if you were sick, leprosy, blindness, paralysis, it was often thought and believed that, it was, it was, that if you suffered with an illness, it was because you or some, a family member had sinned and it was God actually punishing you for it. Jesus' response to the paralytic as he forgives his sin is, is to, when he says, you're forgiven, what he's doing here is he's actually beginning to disassociate sin from our circumstances. He's showing us that forgiveness of sin supersedes our, spiritual, or supersedes our physical needs. You see, when Jesus forgives this man, he's still paralyzed. He's, showing, he's revealing to the culture that those two things are distinct. Because even after the man was forgiven for sins, he was still unable to walk. I think it reveals to us that even when our situations are bleak, even when things are difficult, even when things seem impossible, even when there's no other hope, we can find hope in Jesus. Because although God cares about our situations and our circumstances, God's primary concern is our soul. And whether or not we know him personally or not, and it's here that we, we shift our focus from the four friends who, who had a role in bringing their friend to the rescue to now we focus our attention towards Jesus' response to their faith, hope, and love. Where Jesus reveals to us that he's more concerned about eternal matters. That although the situation and circumstances for this paralyzed man were devastating, these men had hope that something could change. And it does. Hope tells us that, that when things are difficult, when things seem insurmountable, when there are situations where it just feels like there's no other, no other options, and you're at your wit's end, that the story of our lives is still being written by the author of all creation. The story of our lives are still, still being written by the author of all creation. These four friends chose to believe that their friend's story wasn't finished yet, and they found hope in that. Hope reminds us to keep our eyes on Jesus, just like the four friends did, and not give up. 
The friends refused to believe that, their fr- that this paralyzed man's story was completed. And so when these friends saw that the entrance was blocked, when they saw that the lineup was too long, it was hope that compelled them to look for another way. In matters of the soul, our stories always have room for one more plot twist. There's always time to start a relationship with Jesus. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's someone in your life today that you think, uh, there's no way. It would have to be a miracle for that to happen, for them to turn their eyes to Jesus. There's always room for one more plot twist. Hope reminds us that the character of God supersedes our expectations and limitations and calls us to something larger, something grander, something eternal. Because when we know that Jesus has one more move, guess what? It means that we do too. It means that, we, that when we keep looking to Jesus, no matter how difficult it is, we have one more move. where we begin to shift from the urgency of the now to the urgency of the next. So for these four men, we see what happens when they are motivated by a faith in a God who can rescue anyone. When you are motivated by a hope that tells us that there is one more move. And when you're motivated by a love that is willing to do anything to experience the character of God, when you're willing to do anything for others to experience the character of God, it drives us to something else. It drives us to the next. But as I said earlier, the crowd is full of cynics and critics who don't appreciate the importance of of a good heist, who don't appreciate the importance of faith, hope, and love. Because as soon as Jesus says, Son, Your sins are forgiven, they pounce. They say, who is this man to claim to forgive sins? Even if he was the Messiah, which many thought that he was, he couldn't make that claim unless he was was God, unless he was the Son of God. There's no way he has the authority to make that claim. Clearly, this is blasphemy. So has Jesus elevated his opinion, his claim to divinity? If that's the case, Jesus deserves to die. And so to prove his point, and to affirm the urgency of the now and the urgency of the next, Jesus rescues this man spiritually, but then physically he he rescues him as well by healing his paralysis. And as we read in verse 12, it says, This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. Everyone was amazed. Everyone. Cynics, critics, supporters, everyone was amazed. And Jesus uses the faith, hope, and love of these four men to reveal that he is the Son of God and the rescuer for humanity. Our stories aren't finished yet, nor are the stories of people in our lives. There is something about grace and mercy of God that amazes the harshest critics in this story, isn't there? Where culturally the, the paralytic, he would have been part of the marginalized and the outcast. 
Yet we see Jesus welcome him and embrace him with love. If Jesus' mission as a rescuer was to seek and save the lost, it meant for all people. Not just the ones who look like us or talk like us or make us comfortable to be around. But instead, Jesus came to save the addicted, to save the broken, to save the hurting, to save the distracted, to save the deceived. That rescue applies to all people. It rescues to all of us as well. So this morning, as we consider today, as we think about who are the people in our culture as we think about the people who are in our church, who are the marginalized? Who are the people that are on the outside looking in? Who are the people that we've pushed to the outside who are looking in? This morning, I, want, I think we need to consider that maybe we, you, I, have a role in rescuing them by bringing them to Jesus. That it's our hope that reminds us that no one is too far beyond the reach of Jesus that they can't be rescued by him. There's still room for one more plot twist. That his grace extends to all people. That it's our faith that reminds us that Jesus came to die for the sins of all people, regardless of sexuality, Regardless of culture, regardless of their past or present, Jesus came to die for the sins of all people. That we have faith that the story isn't finished being written yet in our lives, and that maybe for the people that are in your lives as well, the story isn't written yet either. That Jesus still wants to, wants to add one more chapter. That maybe you might have a hand in part of their rescue like these four guys. You might get to be a part of, a, of the heist of someone in your, in your life. The urgency of the now demands it. It's our love that will draw people towards Jesus. Not our religious rhetoric. It's our ability to listen and care for others that draws people towards Jesus. Not how well we debate. It's our willingness to meet people where they are at and love them exactly the way they are. For these four guys, they understood that it wasn't their responsibility to, to change their paralytic friend. There's nothing that they could do to change him. They could yell at him. They could shame him. That's what culture did. But they understood that that's God's job. It's God's job to change people. And we see that in this passage. It's our job to love people enough to introduce them to Jesus. This morning, you may have noticed in your pews in front of you, there's little wooden crosses. Some of you guys may, in the front row may not have noticed them. You're going to have to hunt. There should be enough for everyone, though. But what I'd like you to consider is this. Who is the paralytic in your life? Who is the paralytic in your life who needs to be rescued? 
Who is the person in your life who maybe you've recognized that, that you're wanting to introduce them to Jesus, that, that, there's, that God has brought them into your life for a reason? They need to be rescued. We know that the physical and practical needs are important. Absolutely. No, one was, no one's denying that. But this passage reminds us what Jesus really wants is to rescue us from our sin so that we might be in relationship with him as well. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up as I finish this last thought here. The urgency of the now in this chapter, in this, in this moment in time, compelled these four men to this absurd, foolish, outlandish, ridiculous type of love. The kind of love we see Jesus actually honor. And so as you think about who is that person in your life? Who is that person that needs to be rescued? Who is that, who is that paralytic? You can just write, it on, just write it on the cross. Just as a symbol that you are committing to bring that person the presence of Jesus this coming year. That maybe with your words, you might just be an encourager. Maybe in your prayer time, you might just pray for them on a regular basis. That was part of my story. I had a high school friend who, he prayed for me throughout high school, and after high school, he invited me to a church event, and I met Jesus, and I told him that, and he said, I've been praying for you. Prayers change people. Maybe, for, maybe you want to use it as a giant bookmark in your Bible. And so every time you open up your Bible, you see that name. And you just say, Jesus, I just want you to help me to show them your love. Maybe you don't want, maybe you don't want to put it in your bookmark or you use your Bible on your phone. i got friends who, who have a prayer list and they, they put it beside their coffee maker. So every morning when they make coffee, they, say their, they see their prayer, prayer request and they just, as they're making coffee, they just pray all the way down the list. Maybe that's what you want to do. Just, or at work, just post it up somewhere at work and you can see that cross and you can see that name. And you know that that's the person that you are feeling called to in 2022 to bring the presence of Jesus to. It doesn't have to be more than one name. I think one, two names would be, is ideal. That way you can be intentional about who that person is, how you can intercede for them. Maybe you have someone in your life, though, that Jesus has placed there for a reason. Maybe in the last week, in the last month, or last year. Maybe you've had someone in your life for the last decade or two, and you really haven't had that conversation about spiritual things, or you just think, if I'm just going to be, a, I'll just be a nice person to them. I wasn't going to share this story, I just thought of it. Um, Yesterday I went to Lowe's because uh, about a month ago I, I bought some melamine boards and the, the cashier, she only charged, I bought two boards, two sheets of melamine, and she only charged me for one. And, uh, and I didn't notice until I got home and, and, uh, and, I, and I kept forgetting the receipt and, and I kept making excuses of not to go to Lowe's and, and so finally I, I was like, okay, I gotta go to, gotta go to Lowe's to make this right. And, and my conscience was kind of eating at me at this point. It's like been a month. And, uh, and so I, I went there and, and, 
And I, and I said, I, you know, I bought, this, I, I bought these two sheets of melamine, but I was only charged for one. And she's like, why would you come back? And my response was, because it's honest. Now, was that the real answer, or was that the safe answer? That was the safe answer. And so I came back to her, and I said, you know what the real reason is that I came back? I said, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I couldn't look at myself in the mirror and know that I was not listening to what God had told me to do to make this right. See, it's one thing to have conversations where I'm a nice person. It's another thing to have a conversation where I tell people I love Jesus. Maybe for some of us, it's just interceding for the people in our lives through prayer. Maybe it's going for supper, going for coffee, going for wings somewhere. Maybe for others, it's just something practical like shoveling their walk or babysitting. You, see, you know, there wasn't anything overtly spiritual about their, the actions of, this, of these four men as they lowered their friend down. There was nothing spiritual there, but it was an expression of faith, hope, and love. And they saw a need and they met it. And as they did that, Jesus moved. And so this morning, as we prepare for 2020, a new decade, write that name down on that wooden cross in front of you. And I'd like, you to, I'd like to invite you to write that person's name down as, as, as a way that symbolically you are committing to, to intercede for that, for that person. What that looks like is going to be different from, for each one of us. But here's my hope is that when we have our last Sunday service in 2020, that we'll be able to look around and say, see the names of the, the people on those sticks beside us in service. That we'll be able to see how we've had spiritual conversations with the person beside, that, that, that we read on the, on the cross. That the, that the needle has shifted in people's lives to be a little bit more like Christ as we walk faithfully into obedience. So as we sing our last song, maybe it's just a matter of just listening. Who is that person? Maybe you're not sure yet. Let's ask God, who is in our lives that we can point towards Jesus in this new year? But let's refuse to give up on hope. And let's love others into the kingdom because there's a great heist to be had 